Amen. So thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer as well. It is good to be with you this morning. We're continuing in a series in uh, the letter to the Ephesians. We've come to chapter 2, and we're going to read beginning in verse 1 uh, through verse 7. Uh, it is a tidal wave of gospeliciousness. And so you have to just hang on as we read and as we talk together. There is, there's too much truth it's so saturated with truth here that we don't have time for many illustrations or too much funny business this morning. we got to get right after it because there's a lot here uh, that, the Lord would have, uh, that the Lord has for us. So let's read together and then just buckle your seatbelts uh, because it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Let's read. Uh, here's what Paul says to these people and to us. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Amen? Listen, you guys have the clappy clappies this morning, so if you don't do some clappy clappy for me too, I'm going to get a little upset. Okay. Not for me, but that's like, I mean, like, hang in there with me, right? But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Say with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. This passage, these verses, describe what is normative for every person who is a Christian. It describes the, the standard Christian experience. And at the very center are two important words there in verse 4. But God. And in many ways... All of Christianity can be described with just those two words, but God. James Montgomery Boyce said, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. There's a huge difference between everything that comes before the but God there in verses 1 through 3 and everything that comes after. And there's a huge difference between a person before they became a Christian and afterwards. It's described here as a death to life transformation. And so Christianity we see is not just believing certain truths, it is a life-changing power, but it is a power, it's a change that happens to you, not a change that comes from you. That's very important. It's a change that happens to you, not a change that comes from you. It's the power of God towards you, the power of God working in you, not your power, not a work that comes from you. So there's an irony right at the start here. If you haven't been changed by the love of God, it's probably because you don't yet realize that you don't have to change to be loved by God. If Christianity has not been a life-changing power in your life, it's probably because you still think the power for change comes from you, not from God to you. And that is the correction, the corrective that Paul here offers. He says grace it's a spiritual power for change. At the end of chapter 1, Paul describes the immeasurable greatness of God's power. 
Uh, and if you have a Bible, you should look back on that because, again, these chapter headings are artificial. So we're moving right from chapter 1 into chapter 2. He says that there's this immeasurable greatness of God's power. It's like a nuclear power plant for the spiritual life. I mean, as he describes it, the language is overwhelming. And then it says, and it's the best part, it says that all of that power, it says it's toward you. He says there's immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you. In other words, it's not just there in the abstract. It's aimed at you. It's personal. It's yours. It's located, as Tony so eloquently said to us last week, it's located in the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the thing, okay? You ready? I mean, this is the kind of the life-shaking reality there at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. It says it's located in the power of the resurrection, but, here's, but the power of the resurrection of Jesus was so great that it did not just bring Jesus from death to life, but that same explosion of power is what brought you from death to life too, if you believe. Not just him, but all who believe in him. And all of that power, it first works in you, and then it works through you. And that's what you see here in this text. So this is the before and after picture of the Christian life. Do you know what I mean? My gym, they do these fitness challenges, and there's always the before and the after. And I just have quit uh, taking those pictures because there doesn't ever seem to be a before and after for me. The after looks too much like the before. But it doesn't work that way in the, in the spiritual life. This is the before and the after, and they could not be any more different. So here's the question. What's your before and after story? What's your but God story? What's your before and after? It may not be, it may not be dramatic. That's okay. But if you're a Christian, you have one to some degree. And that's what we see here. This is, this is as I've said, the normal Christian experience. And here's how we would describe it. It's these four things. And it's just kind of a sentence that will work out as we go through the text. Every person, the normal Christian experience is once dead in sin, but now alive with Christ by sheer grace because God is a show-off. Once dead in sin, but now alive to Christ because by sheer grace because God is a show-off. Or do you remember what Paul really wants for us here? He wants us to realize the riches that we have. He does not want us to live as paupers when we are in fact spiritually rich. If you are going to be truly spiritually rich, if you're going to live with real spiritual power, you have to see the depth of your sin, the height of your salvation, the riches of his grace, and the greatness of his kindness. All of that's here. So let's walk through it together. You ready? I told you, it's like a fire hydrant. So take a deep breath. Here we go. First, let's see everything that comes before the but God here in this passage. The way Paul describes our life before we believed or the life of people who have not yet believed, the depths of sin. He says there that we were dead in sin. So let's read together again, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's a lot. So take a deep breath. Let's try to break some of that down. It says there that we were dead in sin. It doesn't say we were sick in sin. It says we, we were dead. And everyone who does not believe or has not yet believed their spiritual state 
is just described here. They are dead in trespasses and sins. And there's a big difference between being sick and being dead. If you're sick, you know you're sick. You can go to the doctor. You can do what the doctor says. You contribute. You know, you take your medicines, drink some orange juice, get some vitamin C, go out and sit in the sun, and eventually you get better. But if you're dead, guess what? You're dead. There are no degrees of deadness. There's degrees of sickness. But if you're dead... Well, no offense to Miracle Max and the Princess Bride, there's no such thing as mostly dead, but not all the way dead, right? If you're dead, you're dead. You don't need to just get better. You need something more than that. You need a resurrection. You can't contribute to that. If you're dead, you need life breathed into you. If you're dead, you'll stay dead until somebody comes and makes you alive. You need power from outside of you to bring you to life. We're not sick in our sins, it says here. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And as a result, it says there's a certain way of life that spiritual deadness leads to. And you see all this language here. It's a way of walking through the world. So verse 1, it says, those that are dead in sins are following the course of this world. They're going along with everybody else in the collective project of rebellion against God. That word cosmos there, world, refers to humanity organized in rebellion against its maker. And the word following, following the course of this world, is really just a preposition, actually, that just means according to. So it just means you're according to the world. Or it's once you, you once walked in spiritual deadness according to the world. Just like the rest of everybody else. Just like the rest of the world. No different than any of the other people who were spiritually dead too. Holding to the same ideologies and values. Exhibiting the same character. A worldly way of life. Which is, he goes on, according to, the same word there. Not only according to the world, but according to the spiritual powers of darkness. Do you see verse 2? following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. Which just means that behind Hollywood and Wall Street and Washington, D.C. are spiritual hierarchies of evil, inspiring and birthing evil and structures and institutions and policies and people that make up the day-to-day of the cosmos. And so I want you to get the full force of what Paul is saying here. He's saying all of us, and maybe some of us in the room this morning, but all of us, All of us, at one time, we were walking in spiritual deadness according to the world, which is also according to the cosmic spiritual powers of evil. That's a lot to take in. But guess what? It gets worse. Because it says it's not just the evil out there that's got a grip on us, but it's also the evil in here too, because he goes on in verse 3, he says... Of these same people, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And passions is the Greek word epithemia, which we talk about often around here. Epi desires, out of control desires. It describes a person who lives for themselves only and gets everything they want but is ruined by it. They make good things into ultimate things. You know, family, family is a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, you ruin it. You take all the joy out of it. You create all kinds of anxiety in it, right? Work is a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, you ruin it, makes you driven. Instead of anger in these situations, you find you'll have epi-anger when your desires get blocked. Instead of normal anxiety, which we all deal with, there's epi-anxiety when one of those good things that has become an ultimate thing is threatened. Instead of normal sadness, there's epi-sadness. Your life falls apart when you face disappointment or loss, you become a slave to your desires, a slave to your appetites. What Paul calls here 
the passions or the desires of the body and the mind. And this is the crisis that we're facing today. We thought, we thought, and now we're generations into a project because we thought that if we could be free to pursue whatever our hearts desired, we'd be happy, only to learn that the freedom we actually got ended up being slavery. To live for yourself is not the good life, it is hell. Literally the definition of hell. Sin is not just what we do, it's an estate. It's spiritual slavery, Paul says here, and it's a lot to take in, isn't it? Are you overwhelmed yet? It gets worse. Because it says there's worse news. Because the culmination of all that Paul has said comes in verse 3 when he says, because of all of this, what that means for you and I, before we believe, or for anyone who has not yet believed, is we are all then by nature children of wrath. And that word, wrath, the wrath of God, that idea, we have no, ap- we have no palate for that any longer. It's scary. We'd rather not have anything to do with it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, however, says that it is the other side of the love of God. God is a God of love, but his love spurned results in wrath, which is his righteous anger against sin, his loving anger. Now, when I get angry, nearly all of the time, I stop being loving, <laughs> and I'm just angry because I'm human and fallen and sinful, but God is never one and not the other. God is love. He is not wrath. His wrath is an expression of his love. It is always aimed at evil, which is the enemy of all that he loves. I mean, to love evil is evil. It's immoral. To hate evil is good. It's loving, and that's what this word means, that God does not love evil. He hates evil. But it also means that we are naturally, apart from his grace, a part of the evil that God hates. And therefore under his wrath, justly sentenced to hell and death. Verse 3. But God. Verse 4. Do you see how it turns? And then, starting in verse 4, there's everything that comes after the but God, the way Paul describes the change that we experience when we believe. So it's the heights of salvation as well. So we go from the depths to the heights as we believe. And the very first thing is that it says, God did not look upon us in our sin with disgust. I want to say that again. Here's what Paul says. He says, God did not look upon us, even even though we were objects of wrath, he did not look upon us in our sins with disgust. It's an important point to make. Look at it with me. It says, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So God's response to our sin was mercy. And that word means that he was moved to compassion. I mean, one of the, perhaps one of the greatest verses in the hardest to believe in all of the Bible is Hebrews 4, 15, where, where it says that in Jesus, God actually sympathizes with us in our weakness and sins. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't wag his finger at us. He's sympathetic and compassionate as we struggle and as we're slaves to these spiritual powers. I and mean, we, we sing the song uh, often here, our sins, they are many. What's the line? But his mercy is more. I mean, his love is undefeated against our sin. And so there are three things that it says God has done because of his mercy as a response to what we saw in, chapter, in, in verses three, one through three. It says, first, he made us alive. Do you see that verse five? So immediately, we need to change the way we normally talk about a religious experience because Christianity is not bad people getting religion and learning to be good people. 
Okay, let's just put that away and stop talking that way. Christianity is something different. Christianity is not bad people learning to be good people. It is spiritually dead people becoming spiritually alive. Faith and good works and a truly altruistic life, they first require a change at the root. Otherwise, all the selfishness and the self-centeredness that make you bad will remain and it will just become selfishness and self-centeredness that's making you good. But nothing's actually changed. Jesus said that's not enough. Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. It's not enough to just get religion or to come to church or to be a nice person who cares for others. You can do all of that without any spiritual life in you. But it says here, he can make you alive. And if you've believed, in fact, he's made you alive. But secondly, not only that, it says he's raised you up. See that verse 6? So where there's spiritual deadness, there is now life. There's resurrection. This word refers to a person who's been asleep but is now awake. They got up and they're moving around the house. And that's how you know you're alive. You are awake to spiritual things in a new way. You think and feel and experience things differently. You see your sin. And instead of acting or reacting the way you used to, defending yourself or or blaming somebody else or deflecting, you see your sin and it grieves you and you own it, right? I mean, you look at the unbelieving world and you don't think about how you can get ahead or how you can stay safe. You're awake to the spiritual needs of the world. You grieve over, over the, the, the needs of the world. Where there was a deadness, there's now spiritual life and energy flowing through you. And so a Christian is not just a person who believes in Jesus' death and resurrection. A Christian is a person who has experienced their own death and resurrection. Jesus is alive, and so when we die, we'll be raised to live with him. Isn't that great news? But it's even better than that. If you've believed, you've already been raised. You're already, you're all, you've already had a spiritual resurrection. It says he has raised you up from the depths to the heights because that's the third thing. Look, it says not only has he made us alive, verse 5, and raised us up, verse 6, but there's a third verb here, and it says he seated us in the heavenly places. See that? Should we read it again? Because it's, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that just means what it says. <laughs> I don't understand it. Do, I mean, do you? If you, here, I mean, if you do, please come. And, and I mean, if you if you can if you can explain that to us. I mean, all I can tell you is, is it means what it says. Not only have you been raised to life, but you, if you've believed, you've already ascended into heaven along with Jesus. That verb is in the aorist tense. It refers to a past action. That is not your future. That is your present. You have been raised to the heights. You, if you believe in him, are right now seated with heaven. Seated with him in heaven. I messed that up, right? I mean, that's where you are, even as you walk through this world. And that, that's just a, that just should be like a... You know, like... How does that work? I have no idea. But it's what Paul says is true. And so you see the heights of salvation. But thirdly, then, I want you to see, so this, this terrible picture in verses 1 through 3, and then all of these wonderful realities in verses 4 through 6, and so the change from dead and sin to alive to God, it's just this amazing thing as you walk through this passage. But Paul's very, very 
interested in, in making sure that you see that it is an act of God's grace. He wants you to see the riches of grace here. He's very careful in the way that he constructs the language. Notice he says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And then there's a parenthetical statement that he slips into the text. He says, just in case you haven't drawn the conclusion out, he wants you to see it. He says, by grace you've been saved. In other words, that being dead and being made alive together with Christ, that was an act of God's grace. He wants you to see that it's God's grace at work there. And then he goes on with the rest of the description, raised us up and so forth. Now we can become, we can be really quick here because we're going to come back to this next week. But here's what I want to say to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from God, not from you. If you are, if you're a Christian, you weren't just mostly dead, but not all the way dead. You know, you showed some sign of spiritual life. You twitched a finger and God responded with salvation. No, you were dead. God came to you while you were still dead, before you could believe, before you could even want to believe. And he gave you spiritual life as a gift. By grace, you've been saved. It wasn't 99% God and 1% you. It wasn't 99.9% God and 0.01% you. It wasn't 99.9999999% God and 0.00001% you. It was all God. So you can't boast. You can't take any credit. You can't look down on other people who don't believe like you do because the only thing that makes you different than them is not something you've done or something in you is what God's done for you. And this is really brought out in the original language because there are three verbs, as I've said, those three verbs that we just saw, made alive, he made us alive, he raised us up, he seated us in heaven. And, and those three phrases are really just three words, three verbs. And all three have the pre, a certain prefix attached to them. And it's the prefix sin or soon. And in the Greek, it, it something, it's, a, it's a prefix that describes a connection with something else. So it describes like a branch being organically connected to the vine so that the life of the vine flows into the branch. Or a laptop computer being plugged into the electrical current through the power cable so that the power is coming through the cable to the computer because of the way the computer is connected to the power source. And this is why it reads the way that it does in English. It says, we were not just made alive, we were made alive with Christ. You see that? We were not just raised up, we were raised up with him. We were not just seated in heaven, we were seated in heaven in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that all has happened to us happened to Jesus first. It happened to us because of the way that we are connected with him. And that's what Paul wants you to see, that when Jesus was raised, you are so organically tied to him, if you believe, like the vine and the branch, that you were raised with him. When Jesus went to heaven and was seated at the right hand of God the Father, you are so legally and positionally associated with him that you are already seated there too. Where Jesus is, you're there too. This is what faith does. If he's alive, you're alive. He's alive, so you're alive. He's in heaven, so you're in heaven. Everything that Jesus has ever done, everything that he deserves is yours. That's what, happen when you, that's what happens when you believe. You are as loved and honored and accepted and welcomed in heaven as his actions deserve. We're talking about union with Christ. In Christianity, it doesn't matter what you do. 
All that matters is whether you are rightly related to Jesus because he does all the doing. Remember what he said on the cross? It's finished. The doing is done. There's nothing more to do. God does not love you. This is the good news of Christianity. I mean, it's such a privilege to be able to stand before you week after week and remind you of these things because we so easily forget. God does not love you and accept you because of you. You are the beloved because you're in the beloved. And all that he is and does, all that he deserves, all that he has earned, it's all yours. But if that's true, then that also means, and it's true because if all that he is and all that he deserves is yours, that's true because all that you are and all that you have done and all that you deserve He took all that upon himself on the cross. So here's how this works. We are so united to him that we get all that he deserves because he was so united to us in his love for us that he got all that we deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God treats us according to his righteousness because he treated him according to our sin. See, the real agony of the cross wasn't the nails or the thorns or the thirst. It wasn't the shame of nakedness or the heartbreak of being ridiculed. It wasn't the physical death. It was the spiritual death. It was the alienation from God that our sin deserved. The wrath of God, verse 3 that I talked to you about a minute ago, the wrath of God that was rightly ours, it was poured out upon him in our place. That's what we believe. That is our gospel. And Jesus, in your place, bearing the wrath of God for you is the only way to be reconciled to God. Jesus raised Jesus in heaven, Jesus the righteous, Jesus the beloved, Jesus the hero, and you and him is the only way for you to have all that too. It's all grace. He does it all. It's free to you. I dare you to find a better offer than that. But lastly, why? So let's round to the close here. Why? And Paul, what I love about this text, it's maybe my favorite part of the text, Paul pulls back the curtain here so we can see further into the eternal divine counsel of God. And it's remarkable. He says that God has done all of this and he's done it this way, where we do nothing and he does it all, where we are undeserving and he is merciful. In verse 7 he says he does it and he does it this way so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? God is a show-off. And you're his display piece. And he wants to show, he wants to put on display, to prove, that's what that word means, the greatness of his kindness to you. He wants people to be impressed with how kind he is to you and your hard-heartedness and stubbornness and obstinacy. I mean, that, refer, that word refers to entering a piece of evidence into the record of the case or putting a trophy or an award on a shelf somewhere where everybody can see it. But here's the thing. Here's what I love the most. If it's true that he wants to show his grace and kindness, then that means that it's your messiness and your sin and your weakness that he intends to put on display. So the pressure's off. You don't have to do it right. He would prefer, you come, he would prefer that he be forced to come to the rescue in such a way that it makes him look good. You don't have to be impressive. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to look good and, and, and do it all right um, because God looks good when you do it all wrong and he somehow redeems. And it's hard to embrace, I get it. I would prefer it to just be easy. Anybody else? I mean, I would just prefer it to be easy, but God doesn't exist for us, we exist for him. 
And he, we're told here, wants to be known for his kindness. He, he will be known for his kindness in his end. That's the miracle. That's really the miracle, I think, of verse 7. Is at the end of all things, when we look back at the sum of all of it, there will be only one thing that we will be forced to conclude, and it, was, and it will be that he was indeed kind. I mean, he's eager to be known for his kindness, which of course also means that we should be known, above all things, for our kindness too. Don't miss that. If God wants to be known as kind, we are his image bearers, and therefore the world learns of his kindness through our kindness. It's important to be right, but it's also important to be right in the right way. You can be right, but be right in all the wrong ways. You can believe true gospel doctrine, but then turn around and deny it with an anti-gospel attitude. But this word is translated here, this word kindness is translated easy. It's my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Same word in Matthew 11, good in 1 Corinthians 15. Later in Ephesians, Paul describes kindness here as being tenderhearted and forgiving and sacrificially loving. It's the opposite of bitter and wrathful and angry and malicious. That's how God wants you to be known because that's how he wants to be known. There are riches of grace that would go unknown except that God puts his frail, sinful people on display and then shows up to save them. Can I say that again? Because, because you need to know that story because you're probably living in the middle of it if you're not aware. If you're confused about why life is going the way that it's going, it's because you don't understand the story God's trying to tell. Here's the story God's trying to tell. There are riches of grace that would go unknown except that God puts his frail, sinful people on display and then shows up to save them. I mean, people ask me regularly, why couldn't God just have done it where there was no fall, no sin, and so forth, right? Wouldn't it just been so much easier? I mean, why do we have to deal with all of this mess? Well, I, I mean, again, I, I don't have the answer to that, but part of the answer, part of the answer at least, is there are riches of grace, verse 7. Riches of mercy, verse 4. Depths, those words, there are depths of who God is. Depths of knowing God. Riches and depths of his grace and riches and depths of his mercy that have been put on display in God's saving us for all to see and enjoy and celebrate forever and ever for all eternity that otherwise would have gone unknown. The world will be better in the end for knowing. You will be better in the end in the knowing. I love, there's a, there's a line in an Andrew Peterson song, Don't You Want to Thank Someone, where he says, When the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing. He says, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken than redeemed by love. And I think that's right. These verses outline the story of every Christian person. The chapters of that story contain a thousand different details. But the main narrative arc that each unique story follows is the grace of God powerfully working in sin and weakness, overturning it for good in unexpected ways that are sheer grace so that God's kindness steals the show. That's what's happening in your life. Every single one of us in the room. God powerfully working in sin and weakness, overturning overturning it for good in unexpected ways that are sheer grace so that God's kindness steals the show. And the good news is that to meet him in this moment right here, no matter what is facing you when you leave the room this morning, no matter what heartache you came into the room with, to meet him right here in this moment and to believe that to be true, you don't have to be or do anything different than you are right now. In order to enter into all of the joy and adoration that comes with recognizing his kindness, so here's my question. We have just a few minutes together before we have to go back out and re-enter the rat race. Can you relax into that? Can you take 
a deep breath. Just breathe that truth in. Right? That there's nothing else that you have to be or do other than exactly what you are for God to come to redeem. And it goes for you too if you're not a Christian. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. But here's what we want to say. There is not some heroic feat that you must first go do before you come to God. I mean, the way, the way of faith, the cry of faith is just as the, the old hymn writer. And this is, I pulled out a Baptist hymn today because revival's coming, I suppose. But listen to the way the, the hymn writer, this is just a great old hymn that we used to sing in the Baptist churches that I grew up. Although we just sang it during the altar call maybe a little too much. But, but listen, he says, this, this is the cry of faith. Just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee. That's it, Right? Think about those words again, just as I am, without one plea, except only one, there's one reason, that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. That is the cry of faith. I hope it's your cry this morning. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to respond to God's word. So Father, we thank you for this great word uh, that you've given to us this morning, uh, this, this great litany of truth. Uh, this fire hydrant of gospel truth. Uh, It's overwhelming. It would be so easy for us to live in the hopelessness of verses one through three. And so I pray that, that we would, emotionally you would lead us through it. We shouldn't just jump over it. We shouldn't skip over all of that, but we have to go through it, go through verses one through three and not get hung up on it, not, not get overwhelmed by the reality of how we can live our lives and experience the fallout of our sin on a day-to-day basis, but to push through it to the but God of chapter four and then all the great promises of verses four through seven. And so I just pray in many ways, the Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would lead all of us through that journey so that there at the end that we even in this moment as we respond to you now in singing that in our voice in the smile on our face in the exultation of our hearts in the exhilaration that we feel how overwhelmed we might be at how utterly kind to us you have been that our worship that our singing that this moment of response from us would put your kindness and your goodness and your grace on display. And then for some who may not have ever believed that this would be the moment of their turning away from the darkness of verses one through three into the light of verses four through seven here and that they would trust you. And I pray that this would be a moment where you would come and make hearts to beat again. Come and take deadness and make it life. Come and raise some up to walk with you so that we might be a people of your praise because you're worthy of all of that. And so we go ahead and give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. That, that third verse of that hymn might be some of the most beautiful language uh, ever put down to song. And I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it, but I'm so grateful that we will have all eternity uh, to do that and still at the end of eternity not come to the end of telling of the greatness of God's love. Amen. But here's what that means. That means as we go, if, if you feel it in your heart, the desire to want to put him on display, to want to glorify him with your life, the way to do that is not to exhaust yourself. The way to do it is just to enjoy him, to rest in him, to celebrate his goodness, his kindness, his grace towards you, to, to lean into the promise of this benediction and go in the power of knowing you're loved and just 
be carefree in the care of God. That's how we glorify him, right? That's what our catechism says. We, the chief end of man is to glorify God and finish it. Kids, if you're in the room, and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. So I pray today will be a day of enjoying him, even as you rest into the promise of this last word that he gives to us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.